Good morning. We uh, invite you to take your Bible. Uh, uh, if you are, some are here, some of the staff is here, but uh, for the majority of the church that's online, uh, we're in the book of Romans. Uh, we are in chapter 16 this morning. Romans chapter 16. And I want to say a couple of things before I get into my sermon, just about the uh, national emergency and the coronavirus. A um, couple ideas. Uh, number one, uh, we as Christians uh, should not ever forget that God is sovereign. Uh, Isaiah said uh, back in his day, chapter 14, verse 27, for the Lord Almighty has purposed uh, and who can thwart him, uh, underlining his absolute sovereignty. And that means pragmatically that uh, uh, nothing has caught him off guard in, in this event. Uh, it is part of his plan to accomplish his purposes, and his purposes are right on track uh, for the church, for people, for mankind. Number two, uh, 1 Peter 5, 7, uh, Peter says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Uh, and at a time like this, when a lot of us are anxious, uh, we should be casting our care on the Lord, uh, who will listen to us. Uh, and his care is always there for us. So uh, make sure you spend time with him in prayer, casting your cares on him. Number three, uh, we're not to worry about our daily provisions. Jesus talked about this in his first sermon, Matthew chapter six. He says, for this reason, I say to you, don't be worried about your life as to what you will eat or uh, what you will drink, uh, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, Jesus says, that they don't sow, that they don't reap into barns, yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Then he says, are you not worth much more than they? The answer is yes. Um, he says in verse 30 of chapter 6 of Matthew, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not so much more clothe you? The answer is yes, he'll take care of all your, all your needs. And then he says, what should you be doing? He said, well, you should seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things Then he says will be added unto you. And so it's keeping perspective uh, is to uh, make sure that uh, in the middle of this uh, emergency, uh, this uh, difficult situation that we uh, put God first uh, and seek his kingdom above all things. Number four, uh, the story of the Good Samaritan in uh, Luke 10 merely tells us that we are to help our neighbor not hurt our neighbor. We are to use whatever's at our disposal to reach out to our neighbor to meet their needs. Uh, and so if you have uh, items that a neighbor might need because they can't get them anymore, uh, your responsibility as a Christian uh, is not to just tell them to be warm and well-fed and, and not do anything for them, but to actually assist them. Uh, number four, uh, Psalm 46 uh, tells us that God is our strong tower in a time of storm. Uh, he says uh, in Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, the psalmist says, we will not fear, and we do not fear as believers because we know God is our strong tower and he's in control. Uh, I like the last verse where he says, uh, be still in verse 10 and know that I am God. Uh, I think God has slowed our nation down uh, to cause our nation to be still before him so that they can learn of him and, and lean on him. Uh, Galatians chapter two, or chapter six, verse two, Paul says, uh, we are to bear one another's burdens. Uh, he says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, so when we see other people with needs, we are to, to step in and assist them with their need, uh, especially those of the household of faith, uh, take care of each other. Uh, and that's our primary issue as saints. Um, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29 tells us to uh, 
Trust in the Lord and in his greatness. Uh, and when you do that, he will renew your strength. We know the verses. It says he gives strength to the weary. Uh, him who lacks uh, might he increase in power. Uh, though youths grow weary and tired, the invigorous men stumble badly. Those who wait on the Lord will gain strength. They'll mat up wings like eagles. They'll run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And so we, as Christians, must keep the perspective that uh, we must lean on the Lord. And as we lean on the Lord, he will give us the strength to make it through this difficulty. And then at this time, uh, national difficulty, uh, it's, it's time for Christians to be the hands and feet of Christ to a, a broken, needy world. And so look for opportunity to do that. Uh, our president, and rightly so, has declared this a national day of prayer for um, our nation and for what we are facing. Uh, and so it's appropriate before we get into the word this morning uh, to pray. So I'd ask you to join me. Uh, Lord, we uh, pause and give you thanks for your sovereign nature that you are in control even of this. Uh, and we bow before you and uh, recognize, as the psalmist says in Psalm 46.1, we are to be still before you and recognize that you indeed are God. We pray uh, along these lines for our president, for our vice president, for their staff, for the pressures they are under. Uh, and we pray that you would uh, build a hedge about them to protect them, uh, give their, their cabinet wisdom and understanding of how best to care for our people uh, and to protect us. And we pray that you might open a way for them to do that even in a more better, precise way. We pray for our doctors in our country, the many nurses who are attending to the sick. Uh, we pray that you would uh, give them extra strength for the road ahead, uh, help them to know how best to treat those that are suffering, and we pray that you would uh, protect them as they minister to the sick. We pray for our, our scientists in our, in our country who are researching vaccines. Um, give them an understanding how best to pr produce a vaccine that can protect us, and may that be something that would occur sooner rather than later. And we pray for those in our country who've lost loved ones from this um, coronavirus. We pray that you would be the source of peace to those families and strength uh, for the, the, the lives that they have to face now without the loved one with them. And we pray that you would uh, give them uh, your grace and your mercy for their loss. For those who are sick, uh, might you be merciful to them, answer their prayers, and, and bless them with health and strengthen them. For our nation, uh, we pray that we might rise to the occasion. Uh, we might truly uh, treat each other with respect uh, and above all things, uh, turn our thoughts to you at this time. We give you thanks for the word today uh, from Paul's pen. Might you anoint it to your great glory in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, in Romans uh, chapter 16, we have an interesting section of scripture. Uh, it's Paul's greetings uh, to friends. Uh, and how do you preach uh, greeting after greeting to 26 people? Well, what you have here is what I would call uh, snapshots. And we all have uh, cell phones uh, and you have... Uh, probably hundreds or thousands of pictures, little snapshots on your cell phones. I'll, I'll show you a few uh, snapshots from my life uh, that I just pulled off my phone uh, and make a couple of comments on them as we, we go along. Uh, I have uh, some of my, uh, my daughter uh, at her wedding. Uh, this is uh, uh, when she's uh, opening uh, presents for her wedding shower. Uh, and it's hard to imagine that that was already 10 years ago. So how quickly time goes by. Um, uh, here's another shot of... Uh, of my son and, and Amanda after she said her vows. Uh, Nathan and Amanda uh, posed for a really beautiful picture. And the picture just takes you back quickly to that beautiful day. Uh, here's an, another photo uh, that I love. Uh, this is uh, my best friend, Rick Seeley, uh, the head of a homicide out in California when I was the chaplain for the Sheriff's Department. Uh, before I, he died from pancreatic cancer, he wanted to take one more trip around the United States. And so 
uh, we flew to Disney World because um, he wanted to go there. And so that's what we did. And uh, this is us having our picture taken with Goofy. Uh, here's another picture that I, that I love uh, from my phone. Uh, my little granddaughters, uh, Harper and Olivia, back in the day when they were, I don't know, probably two years old. Um, who can't just love a little picture like that of grandchildren? And then uh, my wife, Liz, who's out in California taking care of the grandchildren uh, during this uh, difficult time. Uh, this is uh, Liz atop uh, Mount Masada uh, a couple of years ago when we were there. And it's fun to go back and look at pictures like that. Now, we all love snapshots because uh, they take you back like to the emotion of a moment. Uh, and you can, you can feel what it was like in your mind. You can remember maybe even what the weather was like, the w wind blowing through your hair, uh, et cetera, if you were on Masada with us. Um, we love snapshots. And in fact, we have so many snapshots, you can categorize them by date, uh, put them into folders so you can get to them quicker. A lot of snapshots that, that of your life that picture your life and have much meaning if you think about them. I think uh, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between uh, what's on our cell phones and what, what's in that Romans 16. Because in Romans 16, uh, we have uh, 26 snapshots of people that uh, Paul sends greetings to. Uh, and each one of their lives uh, represents something great for us to learn from. And as we move down through these particular snapshots uh, from Paul, uh, I want to just make a point from the passage that I think uh, the main idea uh, of this passage is basically this, that physical snapshots uh, like this lead to spiritual lessons. That's not just the life, but if you pay attention and you study it, uh, there's, there's uh, information there to learn. So we want to look through these lives, and there's many lives here. There's names of slaves here of the 26 people he greets. Uh, there's people who were freemen uh, in, the, in the culture, and it just shows that the gospel of Christ that touched anybody and everybody in, in the city of Rome. There are Jewish names here, like uh, Herodian, Apelles. There's Latin names here, like uh, Pleatus and, and Urbanus. Uh, but the majority of the names are Greek. Again, uh, there's people here from uh, all walks of life to show you the power of the gospel uh, to, to go into all ethnic, social, uh, financial sectors and, and redeem people. Uh, we're not going to be able to comment on all 26 names, primarily because uh, some names are just mentioned, just the name, and we don't know anything other than the name. Uh, some names, uh, there is information attached to them, and so we can glean information about them to learn from their life as a saint. And I want to just uh, start with the very first name in the passage, uh, and it's a lady. Interestingly enough, her name is Phoebe, uh, and we read about her in verse 1. Here's what Paul says. It says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sencria, that you receive her in the Lord in a matter worthy of saints, and that you help her in whatever matter uh, she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many of myself as well. Phoebe. It's interesting that Paul would start uh, his uh, greeting list with a woman, uh, especially in a man-dominated culture. Shows you how great this woman was in the church and in Paul's life. Um, why did he commend her to the church? And, and by the way, uh, her name is an interesting name. Her name uh, in the original text means to be uh, bright and brilliant, which uh, just on the side, just makes you ask yourself, when I step into a room, do I bring brilliance and brightness and joy to it? That was, that was Phoebe. Uh, there's three reasons why I think Paul commended her. Number one, uh, he commends her because he calls her a servant, uh, diakonon, or a diaconate uh, is the word that we are familiar with. Uh, she was a servant uh, in the church of Sencria, 
Uh, and Paul probably led her to the Christ uh, when he planted the church in Corinth uh, because uh, Sancria was the port city of Corinth back in the day on the eastern uh, side of the city of Corinth. Uh, Paul spent a year and a half there uh, preaching and teaching. Uh, and she most assuredly came to know Christ during his ministry. Uh, he then uh, calls her, based on his exposure to her, uh, a servant. Uh, what does that exactly mean? Uh, since the word diakonon means a deacon in our terminology, uh, some have, uh, have stated that she was a deacon in the church. Uh, some object to that, but it's probably true that she was a deaconess because in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, we know that the New Testament church had deacons and deaconesses. Uh, their job was to fulfill the, the um, servant roles of the church, not the teaching roles, not the leadership roles, but to care for the body. So she probably was the uh, head deaconess in that church uh, and served in that capacity, probably primarily to the women in their culture. Number two, Paul recommends her to the church in Rome uh, because... She was most likely, according to the scholars, actually bringing the, the, the letter of Romans to the church in Rome. Now, that might not seem any small feat in our day and age, uh, but in their day and age, this meant this woman had to travel 600 miles across land and sea uh, to get to the church uh, in Rome. That was an arduous, expensive, dangerous trip, uh, and she took it, this woman, Phoebe. Uh, she was a servant. What does a servant do? A servant uh, does the hard thing, like take a trip of 600 miles like that. Uh, a servant is sacrificial. She gave up her time and her money uh, to take this letter of, uh, that Paul had written to the Romans to them. A servant is loyal and trustworthy. Paul knew if I gave my letter to this woman that she is going to deliver the goods uh, to the Roman church. That's why he commended her. Number three, he commended her because uh, he says of her that she has been a helper of many and of myself as well, a helper. Uh, the Greek word for helper uh, doesn't just denote uh, giving people physical assistance, it also denotes giving people financial assistance. Uh, that's the, the Greek word, the lexical meaning, which means she was not only a person who helped with physical needs, but she was a wealthy woman who used her money uh, to support the church and to support missionary activity uh, and to be the financial backbone of uh, Paul's ministry, the ministry of her church. Uh, she was there. Uh, be, behind the scenes, tithing and supporting the church as only she could do. Uh, Paul uh, had written to the Corinthians uh, at one point, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, where he uh, told the, the believers in Corinth, and I'm sure she would have heard these words, he told them uh, to make sure that they excelled in giving. Uh, and boy, did she. She so much excelled in giving that Paul uh, ties her giving in here to say she has helped many people financially, myself included. Uh, in chapter 9, verse 6 of 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul also says to the Corinthians, uh, where uh, she would have been attending worship services as well, that uh, we are to sow, sow greatly, because if you sow greatly, you'll reap greatly. Uh, and 2,000 years later, we are still talking about uh, Phoebe uh, because of the great sowing that she did with the finances that were in her hand. And so she made sure that she gave to God's cause uh, and put him first. Uh, we wouldn't just call her like a 10 percenter. This was a lady who gave God her 10 percent and then gave well above that to minister to the body of Christ. What an interesting woman, a little snapshot of her life. Uh, you have to ask yourself, uh, am I Phoebe? Do I act like Phoebe? Am I servant to the body of Christ? And do I use my monies to advance the purpose of God? Number two, in uh, verses three to five, Paul introduces us to his best friends. Uh, he says, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, 
to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles also greet the church that is in their house. Prisca is what Paul calls her. Dr. Luke likes to call her Priscilla. Uh, she was the wife of Aquila, who was a, a Jew from Pontus. Um, interesting that things about them, uh, they, they occur six times in the New Testament. And when they occur, her name always comes before his name. Uh, and scholars have debated why the woman's name in this culture was always listed before the man's name. Um, it could be that she was of a higher social status than her husband. Uh, others have uh, postulated that perhaps she was the more dominant between the two, uh, which happens in relationships. Sometimes the husband is more of the introvert and the wife's more of the extrovert. Uh, but she's presented first in their relationship. How did Paul come to know them? Uh, in Acts chapter 18, on his second missionary journey, Paul traveled to Corinth. Uh, and in verse 1 of chapter 18 of Acts, uh, Dr. Luke tells us what happened. It says, after these things, uh, he, Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a, a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he, Paul, was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Uh, the Emperor Claudius in 52 AD uh, banished uh, all Jews from uh, uh, his, his, the Roman area. They all, had, they all had to leave. And this tragedy that forced Priscilla and Aquila uh, out of their, their home, uh, they moved over to uh, the Corinthian area. And it's while they're in the Corinthian area doing tent working activities that they just happen to run into the Apostle Paul, uh, which just as a side note tells you about the sovereignty of God. He takes a terrible thing like a decree by the emperor, the leader, for all people to leave their abodes and get out of town. And he uses that to guide these two people to the apostle Paul, who will lead them both to Christ. Uh, they're saved in Paul's ministry while they are in Corinth, where they listened to him teach for a year and a half. Uh, they became uh, students of the word of God. Uh, and as we see here in the passage, uh, they had uh, house churches. Uh, when there weren't large buildings like ours, they had home churches, kind of like what you're doing today at home. Uh, since not everybody's able to be in the body, you're at home having like a house church. Um, that's what Aquila and Priscilla did. They opened their home to Christians to worship uh, in their home. Paul says, uh, these are two Christians that uh, helped me at a very dangerous time of my life. Uh, Scholars theorize uh, this probably occurred in Acts chapter 19 when they were with Paul in Ephesus, uh, when uh, the, the town basically rioted over Paul's preaching of the gospel uh, and cutting into the, the ministry of the, uh, the goddess Diana. Um, they probably stepped in and somehow used their abilities to get Paul out of that uh, dangerous situation. Paul says, I remember how they were there for me. Now, what is interesting about Quilla and Priscilla, Paul's best friends, uh, is they are always and I stress always, always mentioned together as a couple. Uh, they're never mentioned individually. And I think from that, you can understand a, a principle about life. If you're married, uh, you have to ask yourself the question, are, are we what I would call a dynamic duo? Is, is, is our marriage used by God to impact the body of Christ? Like they opened their home in Rome to the church. They opened their home in Corinth to the church. They opened their home uh, in Ephesus to the church. Wherever they went, they opened their home for believers to come in so they could disciple them, teach them, and impact them. So you have to ask yourself, uh, will I be remembered uh, in, in my marriage 
uh, as, uh, as a couple that was like Aquila and Priscilla, that we were so closely united together in our love for Christ and his people that we couldn't wait to have them in our home. Uh, for you, that might be a life group, that you open your house to a life group. Um, but a dynamic duo. Now, you have to, on the negative side, ask yourself, if we are not a dynamic duo because our marriage is dysfunctional, well, then I think the, the first thing God would want you to do is get your marriage in shape, get it healthy, so that you can, in turn, uh, be that dynamic duo for the kingdom of God. So if you need some counseling, uh, we can provide that here at the church to help you get healthy and to get functional. Uh, if you need uh, to do some kept vesting to each other, maybe today's the day when basically nobody can go out into large groups, uh, stay at home, talk to each other, confess your sin to your wife, your husband. Uh, but get, get back to a place of great function so God can make you a dynamic duo as Aquila and Priscilla were. The, another individual that we run into is in verse 16. Uh, it's kind of a strange name. Paul says, uh, greet Epinetus, my beloved, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Epinetus, uh, his first convert. The word that he uses for convert here, first convert, uh, is, is the Greek word for the first fruit, which was uh, based on Leviticus chapter 23, 9 to 14, that when a farmer would sow his field, he would cordon off a, a section that germinated first. That was the best of his produce. He gave that to God at the temple first. But when he gave it to God, that section of his field, it represented that there was gonna be more harvesting to come. This man, Eponidas, is called Paul's first fruits which means he was the first convert that I led to Christ of many that came to know Christ. And it just leads to a, a simple pragmatic, pragmatic question, which is, who is your Eponidas? Who is the first person that you have ever led to Christ? What is their name? And do you still know them? Paul still was in contact with this man before cell phones, before the mail, before phones, uh, planes. Paul still stayed in touch uh, with this particular man in his walk with Christ and was happy to send a greeting to him to the Roman church. Who are you staying in contact with that you've led to Christ? And who are you praying for God to give you as a first fruit that will represent many that will come to Christ? And sometimes it just takes that one convert that then opens the door to many converts in your family, in your office, wherever God has placed you. We run into a, another interesting uh, character in uh, verse 8. And here we read uh, uh, an individual, uh, in verse 6, he introduces a, a lady named Mary. And then he says, uh, greet Adronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also are, are, were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Uh, I want to focus on that particular individual, Ampliatus. Who in the world is that and how significant is that particular person? Uh, Dr. William Barclay is really good at giving uh, background information, uh, historical background to situations. And I want to read to you uh, what he says uh, about Ampliatus. He said, behind the name Ampliatus may, may well be what he calls an interesting story. He said, it is quite, it's a quite common slave name. He says, in the cemetery of Domitilla, which is a, one of the earliest of the Christian catacombs, there is a decorated tomb with a single name, Apleatus, carved on it in bold decorative lettering. He says, the fact that the single name Apleatus alone is carved on the tomb would indicate that this Apleatus was a slave. But the elaborate tomb and the bold lettering would indicate that he was a man of high rank in the church. From this, Barclay says, it's plain to see that in the early days of the church, the distinctions of rank were so completely wiped out 
that it was possible for someone at, uh, at the same time to be a slave and to also hold a high position of responsibility in the church, such as the nature of the gospel. You could take a guy that's a CEO of a huge company and Christ can lead him to the faith. And then you could take a person who's a slave at the bottom end of the social spectrum. The gospel can lead him to Christ. And in Christ, they're one. And God can use both of them to advance uh, his, his, his cause. So you must look at yourself for a moment and say, um, am I a Pleiotus? I mean, am I at the low end of things in life? Uh, and you might not have great self-esteem uh, and feel not great about yourself, but God says, no, I take people like a Pleiotus and when they turn their life over to me, uh, well, I use them to do great things. And Paul says, greet, greet that man because God has done great things in his life. Verse nine, he says, greet uh, Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and uh, Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved of Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Aristobulus, the house of Aristobulus, meaning his slaves. Uh, who is Aristobulus? Uh, Aristobulus uh, was the grandson of Herod the Great that attempted to kill Christ when Christ was born in Bethlehem. Uh, Aristobulus, we know from history, lived his entire life in Rome. Uh, and if you want to talk about a messed up dysfunctional family, that was the Herodian family. Uh, power hungry, uh, politically ruthless, uh, totally godless family. Uh, from this particular family came... Uh, Sons, like grandsons, like uh, Aristobulus and his brother Herod Agrippa I. Uh, evil people. Herod Agrippa was the one uh, that was much like his uh, father Agrippa, grandfather Agrippa. He was responsible for killing James, the Lord's brother, uh, in Acts chapter 12. These are ruthless leaders. Uh, and if this, in fact, is Aristobulus, the grandson of Herod, it shows that the gospel had so permeated um, the political environment within Rome that his slaves that ran his house were saved, which means God had put the gospel strategically in a location so that not only could the slaves hear the gospel, but they would surround the politician with the gospel with the hopes of leading that particular politician to Christ. This is amazing. Uh, how great the gospel is, that God used it to reach even the political people opposed to the gospel for him. Um, when you go down to the next verse, verse 11, uh, that same theme transfers to the next individual where he says, greet those of the household of Narcissa who, is, who are in the Lord. This is another group of slaves. When you have to ask yourself, well, who is Narcissus? Uh, Narcissus was the name of the secretary of the emperor Claudius. Uh, the same emperor that, that chased Aquila and Priscilla out of town. Uh, he became powerful and very wealthy with his position because if you wanted to talk to uh, the emperor, you had to pay him a bribe to get the opportunity to present uh, your situation to the emperor. So he uh, took hefty bribes and became very powerful. Um, when, uh, when the emperor uh, was uh, murdered, Claudius was murdered and Nero took over, uh, eventually Nero forced Narcissus to commit suicide. Um, what we see from this is in the house of Narcissus, this very powerful man, he's surrounded again by slaves who love Christ and love the gospel. So here you have two evil politicians. You have uh, Aristobulus from the Herodian family, Narcissus, uh, the main aide uh, to the emperor uh, Claudius. Their households are run by people that love Christ. And what this tells you is God had sovereignly and strategically placed believers 
all throughout those politicians' lives with the hopes that they would one day come to know Christ as Savior. Translates to you in what way? Well, wherever God has placed you, uh, whether you're at the, the Pentagon, you're at the, the CIA, the White House, wherever you are, God has strategically placed you there uh, to speak truth of the gospel to those that you are near, to be light in, in the darkness to them is your responsibility. Uh, in verse 12, we run into two young ladies that I find interesting. Paul says, greet uh, Tryphena and Trophosa, workers in the Lord. Tryphena and Trophosa, these were probably twin sisters, uh, and their, their names in the original language means to be dainty or to be delicate. Uh, and this is kind of amusing because Paul says of these two twins, whose names mean to be dainty and delicate, uh, he says that they are workers in the Lord. Uh, the word for worker here, kopion in the Greek, uh, means to be strong like a workhorse. Uh, and I have a picture of a workhorse, not that they looked like this, but Remember, they were, they were dainty, uh, uh, but they were powerful. So they might have been small and frail in structure, but their ability in the church was off the grid. So if you, you took a, a, a couple like this, a young set of twins uh, of Tryphane and Trophosa, put them in our church, uh, if, if there was a children's program, they'd be the first ones to sign up to serve. Uh, if, if the church needed a parking team, they'd be the first people to, to help park the cars. Uh, if... Uh, if they were needed to lead a life group, they'd open their home. They'd even lead the life group. Uh, if, if there was a worship team needed uh, with members, uh, they would be the first to say, hey, I, I play this instrument or I can sing. They would volunteer. They were workhorses. They weren't looking for how to get out of work, but how could they work for the Lord? Uh, as I thought about it this week, uh, our church is full of young ladies like that and men like that uh, who who do way above and beyond what God calls them to do. A lot of our people come uh, to like the eight o'clock service and then stay and serve in the other services. Some come at our second service and then stay and serve for the third service. This is the kind of activity God is looking for, people that are sold out to him and wanna serve him. And God says, greet those young ladies. I know who they are. The last uh, one I wanna look at uh, is an interesting individual in verse 13. His name is uh, Rufus. Paul says in uh, verse 12, greet uh, Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Leads to the logical question, who's Rufus? Um, Acts chapter 15, it, I think, introduces us to who Rufus is. Uh, concerning the, the crucifixion of Christ, as Jesus headed uh, to the hill of Golgotha, carrying his cross after his vicious beating by the Romans, uh, Mark gives us the details of what happened on that road as he headed to Golgotha in verse 20. It says, after they mocked him, they took the purple robe off of him and they put his own garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed him into service. As they pressed him into service, a passerby coming from the country, his name was Simon of Cyrene, then Mark parenthetically adds, he's the father of, follow this closely, Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated the place of the skull. Uh, who's Rufus? Well, he's most likely the son of Cyrene. And who's that? Well, that's the man that carried the cross of Christ up the rest of the hill to Golgotha. Think about uh, Simon of Cyrene. Uh, this meant that Simon was uh, from uh, North Africa, uh, and he's a Jew that had paid a lot of money to get to uh, Passover. It was no simple trip, and I'm sure he was looking forward to this trip. 
And as he's uh, in the crowd that day, uh, he, he all of a sudden sees a, a crucifixion detail going by with men bound for uh, capital punishment. And as he's standing there um, watching uh, this one man go by all bloodied and beaten with, a, with the crown of thorns and, and uh, gasping for air, that's when the Roman soldiers step forward and grab him and conscript him to carry the, the cross of that particular man. You, can, you would think this was probably the last thing that he wanted to do because he didn't come to, to the, the Passover uh, to, to carry a cross of a, of a criminal. Uh, but, but God had him there strategically placed uh, to be there for the Messiah when he walked by. Uh, and he said nothing from what we read in the scriptures. He stepped forward and helped Christ carry that cross, this non-saved Jew who didn't even know who Jesus was. You have to ask yourself, what was it that happened between Jesus and Simon as they carried that cross? I mean, did, did, did Jesus say anything to him? Or was it just a look of love in the eyes of Christ that said everything that needed to be said to that man? I mean, think about it. He's going to Passover, Simon, to observe the Passover feast, to watch the lamb slain, to cover the sins of the people, etc. But he carries the cross of the Passover lamb. How ironic. I wonder what Jesus did say to him if he said anything to him. I mean, did he tell him, Simon, thank you for carrying my cross today. I'm the Messiah. I mean, what did he say to him? Did, did Simon stick around for the crucifixion? Did he hear what Christ had to say from the cross? Did he hear his final words? But something happened in his life that day because we know from the scriptures, uh, the book of Mark, that Simon must have come to know Christ because when we get to Paul's letter to the Romans, we find out that one of the sons of Rufus along with his wife came to know Jesus as Savior. It's the power of the gospel. You know, you might be Rufus um, about your merry way, not thinking about Jesus at all, and all of a sudden God uses an event to get your attention and to cause you to think about him and to focus on him and to focus on his gospel designed to save you. Will you look into his eyes and come to him in faith as Simon did? Will you then share that joy of the Savior with your wife, with your sons, with your family? He did. When I think about Simon uh, and what, how God transformed his life on that day going up that hill, uh, I think of the, the old chorus that really puts it in perspective. It says, I'm forgiven, but you were forsaken. I'm accepted, but you were condemned. I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Then the chorus says, amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me Amazing love, I know it's true. It's my joy to honor you. Amazing love, how can it be? That, that's probably what Simon said all the way until he saw Christ face to face in the next life. Uh, love that orchestrated his travel to be there at that right time, at the right place, to carry the cross of Christ, to come to know the Christ, to lead his family to Christ. What a wonderful opportunity. Uh, we're facing a, a tragedy in a nation and as a world. Uh, but God works in tragedies to get people's attention. Uh, and may he get your attention and cause you to step forward like Simon and to come to know the Christ as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just for the opportunity to open the scriptures. Uh, pray that you would bless those uh, that have watched online, 
may they see their life as a spiritual snapshot that says much about them. And we thank you for who they are and how they serve in our church and serve you uh, and give and support your work uh, like Phoebe did. We just thank you for each life here that even though the sands of time have etched away who they are with specifics, there's still enough here that we can learn from to say, I want to I wanna be like that individual uh, that did so much for Christ. We pray your blessings upon us this week. Protect us, uh, guide and direct.